this week on the Back Table Podcast. And can we talk about college basketball too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aaron, I, I guess the fact that my Tar Heels are the national champions, I think that's uh, probably the. Uh, gotcha. you know. Yeah, I, that was the first thing I wanted to say. I want to say uh, congratulations on uh, the victory this year. And I'm all sad that we weren't able to meet in Phoenix to watch the Wildcats beat the Tar Heels, but there's always next year. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, we got that out of our system. Now we can all right, start good. talking about work. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Anish Parikh. Um, I'm the managing director of TEC, which is a startup studio based in Boulder, Colorado. We helped bring Backtable to life and um, are helping to drive it forward. So with me today are Aaron Brandis and Peter Bream. I should say Dr. Aaron Brandis and Dr. Peter Bream. So welcome, guys, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to be here. Our, our pleasure. So um, our topic for today is G-Tubes. Um, and um, I'm going to start, I guess what we have here are two legends of the field who have two very different ways of performing G-Tube procedures. And I guess, you know, maybe um, Dr. Bream, would you like to start us out, talk about your uh, how you approach this dr bream would you like to start us out here and uh talk a little bit about your approach and then dr brandis would like to hear yours and we'll we'll go from there absolutely um at uh my particular institution um we were not placing very many uh g-tubes as i uh started i i went and talked to some people and and wanted wanted to know why we were not doing many g-tubes and the complaints were that the tubes were too small they weren't standard and they clogged and fell out and the reason for that was that we were using uh the old wills oglesby tube uh for placement which is a, a 12 french pigtail tube made by cook and uh very easy to place and uh, it's basically you're doing an abscess drainage in the stomach and um, using Seldinger technique. And uh, I started to uh, consider, and this was about 12 years ago, I started to consider ways that we could place a standard tube uh, into the stomach. I started thinking about ways to do this. And, and I remembered from when I was in fellowship, one of my attendings, uh, Jeet Sandhu, was uh, using an angioplasty balloon to dilate a tract to do pancreatic debridement. And what he would do is he would take a, a, an angioplasty balloon and dilate from the skin into the pancreatic abscess and then place that inside of a argyle chest tube, a stiff argyle chest tube, which had multiple side holes. And by using the front end of the balloon as kind of like a dilator, he was able to get it into this cavity and do these um, very labor-intensive uh, necrosectomies, basically. Uh, so I started thinking about doing that same technique with the the um, gastrostomy tube, and I and I played around and I found that I could put a standard angioplasty balloon inside of a twenty French mic, um, used to be made by Kimberly Clark, now by Halyard. Um, G-tube, and by using this coaxial method, I could actually use the balloon to dilate the tract, 
And then as the balloon was dilating, I could advance both the balloon and the G-tube over the wire. And then once the balloon was completely deflated, I just pulled it out and the G-tube remained in the stomach. Uh, And then over the years, I've uh, changed the different types of balloons. um, And I have been able to develop a, a technique where I can do this without any conscious sedation at all. And um, uh, just with local. And it's amazing the difference between dilating a balloon in the stomach and pushing a stiff dilator through the skin and into the stomach, the difference in the pain. Hmm. Uh, I have patients that once, they're, once the skin and the stomach is numb, you can dilate the balloon. And, and I use a nine millimeter balloon at this point. Uh, you can dilate a nine millimeter balloon from the skin all the way through the stomach. And they don't they don't register any pain whatsoever. So this has allowed me to go after select groups of uh, patients in um, our, at at our institution, namely ALS and other movement disorder patients who have paralyzed diaphragms and are risks for putting anybody under anesthesia or even um, heavy sedation. Uh, And then the head neck cancer patients who have tumors and obstructing uh, lesions in their throat so that an endoscope won't pass easily. So, um, you know, I think there's some pretty interesting stuff here. I mean, you know, pretty, pretty amazing stuff, really. I mean, to, to summarize, you had observed in another application where balloons could be used to assist and uh, another doc had kind of fashioned his own technique. And then you really, you know, for your work, in, um, you know, working with head and neck cancer and ALS patients, developed this line where, you know, you essentially developed a new technique, and I think you're calling it the balloon-assisted gastrostomy, right? Yeah, I, I didn't do the tag. So, yeah, this is the bag, the balloon-assisted okay. uh, gastrostomy. Okay. And and really, so so with this technique that you've had a hand in, you know, in developing, or uh, you know, you're now achieving minimal sedation and, and maybe local sedation when you're placing your 20 French tubes. Um, right. And you got some some literature, you know, it's going to be coming out in the literature, I guess, in the coming weeks and months here. Correct. Cool. Um, well, we're going to get into some more of that, but thanks for that overview. And then, um, uh, so let's pause it right there. Dr. Brandis, maybe if you would talk a little bit about about your work in, in uh, placing G-tubes. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, um, um, we kind of favor placing... Um, Ponsky gastrostomy tubes, and they're the ones with everyone calls them the mushroom tip, or they have the button on them. Um, they're more difficult to to pull out, which is often a problem, and they're more uh, kind of just sturdier tubes need to be replaced kind of less frequently than the um, the the MIC um, gastrostomy, at least in our in our situation, and so. Uh, the kind of the approach that we take is we go, um, we call it a pull type gastrostomy. It's probably, I don't know if that's the correct term or the peroral gastrostomy. Um, but basically, um, with one puncture into the stomach, we're able to, uh, we feed a wire out up through the, uh, esophagus out the mouth and then we pull the gastrostomy tube, um, through the esophagus and into the stomach. And in kind of experienced hands, it's a quick procedure. 
it, do, it requires not a lot of sedation in these patients, and you know there's some people who are concerned about aspiration or when you're doing this technique. That's not really something we have seen in our patients. Um, the, the rate of aspiration pneumonia is no higher than uh, if placed um, kind of percutaneously using the traditional techniques. Um, so. so I think what I'm oh, hearing you ahead. say is that, you know, this technique offers a more efficient procedure time, arguably, without any, you know, any negative consequences on complications or other uh, you know, problematic outcomes. I mean, if, if that's a, you know, tell me if that's an accurate way of summarizing, you know, the, the benefits yeah. of this technique. I'd say, I'd say in experience hands, uh, I'm sure Peter can do a G-tube and, the, the, in this technique, probably quicker than I could do it in using my technique. Um, you know, I'm not, we're not talking about, you know, hours and hours, but I'm sure he can get something done in, uh, I don't know, under, under 10 minutes or something. Um, where yeah, I, although I, I will say that doing something quickly doesn't necessarily mean it's better. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. Why, why do you say that, Peter? What, you know, uh, what, are you, what do you have in mind there? Well, there are certain steps uh, to a gastrostomy tube that can't be skipped, and there is a certain amount of time that's required to do a gastrostomy tube. And the difference between doing one in 10 minutes and doing one in 15 minutes in the big picture is, is not a big deal. Um, certainly, um, doing a per-oral uh, if if you can get the wire, if you can get the catheter up into the esophagus and and connect everything and pull it through, is is very quick. Um, you know there are times when the when you try and dilate with the angioplasty balloon and it doesn't dilate fully the first time, and you have to um, do it a couple of times and and it takes longer. But I think you know we do obsess a little bit about speed of procedures when. Really, the most important thing is getting a safe tube that's that it, that will work for the patient. Yeah, um, I like the fact that that um, Aaron pointed out that his his population of patients is at risk to pull out a, a balloon uh, tube, and um, the mushroom tube is a better type of option for that 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 patient um, population. My um, head neck cancer patients. The um, I don't know the exact numbers, but the the amount of time that they keep this is usually between three and 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 nine months, with most of them around three months because they're getting treatment and then they can start swallowing again, and so being able to deflate the balloon and and just slide it out at the end of three months is is much more comfortable um, than removing one with a with a mushroom tube and and I don't see the long term complications with that patient population. So I think you really, again, in this era of personalized medicine, I think you need to assess who you're going to be doing your procedures on and who is going to be taking care of these patients and, and what is the best tube for them. Yeah. And it's like you said, with your pre, you know, pre-procedure, procedure and post-procedure preparations, you know, and combined with your comment about time, I mean, I think it is not just a matter of the time spent on the procedure itself, but the time and energy and effort spent on the entire care life cycle. Right. And that's absolutely, 
So um, the the um, let me ask you guys this: Ch- change gears a little bit. The um, you know we've effectively our audience there are IR gearheads, right? So mm. let's let's go into a couple more details. Um, what are there specific either catheters or other devices that are required? for um either of your guys procedures um specific manufacturers or um you know specific SKUs or whatever you know can you talk about that a little bit um there nothing nothing that you don't really already have on um the shelf uh if you if you get the um this old type gastrostomy kit uh and what we actually do is we play a place a short 10 french um sheath uh, a six French uh, sheath into the stomach, and through that we use a five French MPA catheter, which allows us to um, kind of catheterize the, the GE junction and then um, retrograde, send a wire up the esophagus, and then you get that to come out the mouth. Um, the kit itself comes with uh, an exchange length um, stiff amplast wire, which then you send down to the catheter the other way. Um, you load the tube on um, the wire uh, from the mouth, and then you basically just pull that pull that through, um, and that that's basically about it. Um, so the only things that don't come in the kit uh, that we use are the the short uh, 10 centimeter um, six French sheath and then MPA catheter. The uh, the kit um, for the with the tube, you could find a other things on the shelf to, to do it. Um, so I guess on that, you know, Dr. Bream, are there other specific devices that must be in stock in order to execute the, the, the bag procedure? Absolutely. I basically have assembled my own kit using stuff that is on my shelves already. I use the, the, um, halyard uh, absorbable suture T-fasteners. Um, this, is, this is something that in, in my career has absolutely changed this procedure for uh, anybody that does a push technique. In the, in the prior years, we had a T-fastener called the Brown-Mueller T-fastener, uh, Brown-Mueller, two persons' names, um, that was made by Boston Scientific. This was in um, competition with the COPE um, gastrointestinal anchor set, which is made by Cook. And those two were the only two uh, PEXI types that were on the market at the time. The um, COPE set, you, you placed the needles in and it had a suture and you actually had to tie the suture um, on the outside. And, um, I very quickly stopped using that just because of erosion through the skin and some other issues that it had. The Brown Mueller was nice in that it came preloaded in a needle. You placed the needle inside the stomach and then you popped the T fastener out. And then it had this cotton pledge on the outside and these, um, these little grommets that you crimped down. Uh, I grew up as a sailor, and so I was rec- I recognized the little crimping techniques from when I used to 
uh, rig my sailboat and stuff. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. <laughs> the problem with that tea fastener though, was that it had to be removed. And in these patients, just like Aaron said, that go to a sniff or a, or a, you know, skilled nursing facility, they uh, would get lost to follow-up and they would show up six months later with this abscessed uh, tea fastener still in their skin. Um, really things changed about six or seven years ago when these um, absorbable suture, uh, first made by Kimberly Clark, now by uh, Halyard, uh, sutures, uh, the Pexies came about. And what's nice is that they sell them separately from their kit. So the first thing I grab is their kit, which has four um, uh, Pexy needles that have a nice little um, plastic button on the outside that's adjustable. Uh, so that's the first thing we grab. Just like Aaron, I use an 18-gauge Cook uh, percutaneous entry needle, just the same one I use when I do an art- arteriogram or um, you know any access into a vein or an artery. Um, I grab a um, Amplatz wire, um, standard or extra stiff, whichever one you we, you like. Um, and then I have a short connecting tube that I put on the back of um, the. Um, both the pexy needle and then I, I move it over to the Amplatz, uh, to the, um, sorry, the 18 gauge needle. And that allows me to hold the needle. Um, I attach a syringe to that and that allows me to fluoro while I'm holding the needle so that I know that I'm going in a straight line. And by holding my hand, I can keep it outside of the beam. So that's, that's just a little trick that I have. So it's a little six inch connecting tube that I have um, between the needle and that. The other thing we need is, uh, and, and Aaron, I, I want to, when we're done with this, I want to ask you a couple questions about your technique because I am interested in it. Um, but one of the things that we have to do is we have to inflate the stomach with air. And to do that, uh, we either place, have either a person comes to us with a standard Dopov or NG tube in place, that's, that's preferable. But if not, and especially in the head and neck cancer patients, we use a standard 45-degree angle Cumpy catheter or vertebral catheter, 65 centimeters long. Um, we uh, used to use the Cook um, Cumpy with the beacon tip, but since that went off the market, we switched to use the Merit Maestro um, 5 French. Um, they call it a KA2 or something like that, but it's basically a 45-degree angle catheter and I use a Benson wire, which is a a long floppy tip wire from Cook um, to be able to navigate through the tumor um, and into the person's esophagus. And we actually will do this sometimes under fluoroscopic guidance because they are so obstructed sometimes with tumor. Uh, And once we get that five French catheter into the stomach, we then can um, hand inject air through a 60 cc syringe uh, into the stomach to prep the stomach um, before doing the G-tube. So um, go back to the kit. So on the table, when we're about to do the procedure, we have the T-fasteners. We have a um, Amplatz wire. And then I use a Boston Scientific Mustang balloon. And the reason I use this particular balloon is that it is nine millimeters wide, 
by 80 millimeters long, and it comes on a 40 centimeter shaft. And that makes it really nice because you don't have to deal with the long 75 or 100 centimeter shaft wire um, catheter through the G-tube. And um, before I start, I wet the, the 20 French Halyard uh, standard MIC G-tube, um, place the angioplasty balloon inside the lumen and pull it so that the balloon is sticking out of the end of the of the gastrostomy tube and it overlaps the back of the gastrostomy tube by a couple of centimeters. Once we've put the, and I use two T fasteners, unless the patient is very large, then I will use three T fasteners, but I use two T fasteners and then place the 18 gauge needle um, between those two T fasteners. And I always angle the needle towards the antrum of the stomach so that when the wire goes in, it immediately goes out uh, the pylorus of the stomach, so that if we ever have to exchange this for a GJ tube, you already have that angle so that you do not have to worry about looping up into the stomach and coming down. Um, once I have the Amplatz wire in place, I then take the angioplasty balloon and G-tube and advance it over the wire, and you, I position the two the, the, the um, balloon between the two T-fasters. The T-fasters give you a nice a, uh, area where the stomach wall is. And I then angi- uh, start the angioplasty and blow up the balloon. It's got a nice uh, 18 um, millimeters of mercury uh, or water uh, pressure. It's got a nice burst pressure. And I... The back of the G-tube is very, very, the, the G-tube is very, very flexible. So I actually advance that tube down to the skin so that the back of the balloon is outside the skin and the G-tube is being expanded over the tip of, over that so that it actually holds it onto the t- balloon. Once we start deflating the balloon, you grab the, the whole balloon and G-tube together and advance it through. So I kind of made, you know, this whole, there's no kit that you can buy to do a bag. You basically take an off the shelf, uh, um, standard angioplasty balloon, standard wire and standard, um, T fasteners. Okay. And, and those, just to, to ask, to add on to that, those balloons, how much interchangeability is there in the balloons? So it, it's interesting because um, this is about the fourth different type of balloon that I have used. I initially started with a 10 millimeter wide by four centimeter long balloon. And that was because we didn't have eight centimeter long balloons at the time. I then discovered that I didn't need to use 10 millimeters. I could use nine millimeters. And I went to, so the very first balloon I used was a cordis. Um, power flex. I then went, um, discovered the barred Dorado balloon and they were the first ones to come on that short shaft. So I used a nine by eight Dorado balloon. Um, and again, for gearheads and for the interventionalists, there's a, there's an interesting little play here. So the Dorado balloon, I, I would blow it up and I would use, uh, half contrast and half saline in the balloon. And when I deflated the balloon, 
it deflates a lot slower than most other balloons so that I was able to push the G-tube in while it was deflating and the timing worked out right. After that balloon, they st- uh, Bard stopped making that balloon. So then I went to this Mustang balloon. And the first thing I noticed was I was having some trouble getting the balloon, uh, getting the tube in before the balloon deflated. And I noticed that the, there must be a larger channel or something, or one of the, the things about the Mustang is that it does deflate very quickly. So what we've decided, what we ended up doing, and um, I'll do a shout out to uh, Andrew Lipnick, one of my former partners. He suggested that I do three quarters saline and one quarter, I mean, I'm sorry, three quarters contrast and one quarter saline. And so since I've done that, which makes it more viscous, and since I've done that, now I can get the balloon in before the, flame, the, the balloon completely deflates. Uh, so just for, for the interventional gearheads out there, it's kind of an interesting path that I've been on to develop it. And right now the, the Mustang has just worked out tremendously for us. Okay. And so, uh, Dr. Brandis, any plans to do a bag in the near future? <laughs> uh, we just got, well, got the, the roadmap there, the, the whole game plan. Um, yeah, no. And, uh, I honestly, I think it's a, a great procedure and the right patients and, um, I, as Peter said, one of the, uh, types of anchors, uh, is, you know, the, uh, made by Cook and was designed by, uh, Stan Cope, who basically built the walls of, uh, Penn Interventional Radiology. Um, and that's what we still use here. So I think, uh, trying to get the absorbable, um, uh, anchors, uh, in here might, might be a problem. They might, uh, they might yell at me for that, um, although I have used it uh, when I was out um, in the private practice world, and I do do prefer them. Um, so if the time comes and I find the uh, the uh, situation requiring, I think a bag is a great procedure, and I definitely would, would attempt it. And Dr. Bream, is there an occasion where, say, you might teach your fellows how to do a POG, depending on what type of patient population you have? Uh, definitely. Uh, especially in um, if we were able to get more of the stroke population and more of the population um, that uh, Aaron described earlier, uh, it would be very interesting to me to um, to develop this technique. Um, I, I did have I did have a couple of questions, Aaron, if it's okay about that procedure, Go ahead. Um, uh, because because I have never seen it done. Um, do you? Uh, inflate the stomach before you inject it and how, uh, before you stick it with a needle and, uh, how do, how do you, how do you inflate it if that's the case? Yeah. Um, so we actually do it, uh, very similar, um, if not identical to how you do it. Um, most, well, it's about 50, 50, uh, whether patients come down with a, uh, some sort of nasoenteric feeding tube, uh, in their already, um, and if they don't have a tube, we'll use a uh, 65-centimeter um, 5 French Berenstein catheter uh, to inflate the stomach. Um, usually, we, we give most patients glucagon um, uh, yes, to, keep, to keep the air yeah, from, uh, from going anywhere. Um, and then similarly, we, you know, we, we get the same sort of access point as you do. And I will uh, direct it towards the um, 
the antrum because oftentimes, like you said, uh, we're asked to convert these to gastrojejunostomy tubes down the road, and you can really never predict that, so you don't want to be stuck with uh, a tube that's gained. It would be much, you know, the procedure might be much faster if you aim for the gastroesophageal junction with the uh, the needle. Um, however, then, if you need to convert it later, you get yourself into kind of a, a pickle there. So um, even with the initial puncture towards the antrum, you know, since you put in uh, a sheath, um, you can use that sheath to direct the catheter up to the, the GE junction without uh, too much effort. Um, and, and yeah, so uh, kind of the beginning of the procedure is basically, I would say, pretty, pretty much identical to, to your technique. Have you ever considered putting that catheter into the pylorus and snaring it and pulling it through instead of having to navigate back up through the esophagus? Yeah. So in the, uh, in the, there are some cases where you just, you just can't get up, uh, the GE junction, you know, you, you try, you start with your MPA, um, that's not doing the trick. Uh, you, you throw in a Cobra with, or some reverse curve or something and that you just can't for some reason get out. Um, and so you can either, you can do it a couple ways. You can either try and snare, you can put a wire down, uh, the catheter, um, that's, uh, you use for the, uh, the insul- gastric insufflation and snare that out through the, um, sheath. Or you can place a, um, a snare down, uh, kind of the GE junction, then use a wire, um, from your sheath to get it out that way. And so, I mean, I'd say less than 5% of the time you actually need to do that. Uh, the fellows love when you get to do that because anytime you open up a snare and you, you, you floss, something using a snare, you know, the greatest time ever. Absolutely. Um, so they're, they're big fans of that, but it's, it's actually pretty rare um, that you need to go that route. How about barium? Barium the night before, question mark? Uh, we do not do that routinely. Okay. I, um, part of my pre-procedure um, meeting with the patient is to describe um, the barium and uh, I do give all of my patients barium the night before unless they have a surgical reason that they don't have a colon or they have had a prior G-tube and I'm just recanalizing a tract. Um, but there, there have been, uh, I've had two cases in the past 10 years where um, the colon was not fully, the transverse colon was not fully opacified we thought it was, but it, it wasn't, and have uh, put the, the tube through the colon. So uh, I'm a big believer in, in using um, barium. Now, the other thing that I've learned over the years of doing many of these is one CT scan that shows the colon in front of the stomach doesn't mean anything. And I have many cases of patients who in the past, I would have looked at their CT scan and said, I'm not even going to try this because their colon's in front of the stomach. And I started being a little bit more aggressive. And you can find patients where you look, you get one CT scan and it's completely in front of the stomach. And then three months later, you get a sec, you, they happen to have had a second CT scan and the, the transverse colon's in the pelvis. 
Uh, it's tremendously uh, mobile. And so I have actually gone away from um, refusing to do a G-tube if the CT scan suggests that the, the, the uh, colon is in front of the stomach. And I always will tr- uh, make sure that they have barium and will at least inflate the stomach and see what everything looks like. There still are patients that we aren't able to do it because uh, of going through the colon or going through transverse mesocolon or anything like that. Um, but at, I don't just outright refuse to do them like I used to. Yeah, I'll well, second that. Um, we yeah, often, you know, we'll pull up the CT and um, everyone will think that, the, you know, the, like you said, the colon's in front, there's no way, and then you get them down here. In, you insufflate the stomach and the colon's way, way somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I agree that uh, one CT scan showing the colon uh, in front of the stomach is not a good reason to refuse a gastrostomy tube. And in the current culture where everyone's sort of kind of fighting for these or at some places, like, you know, we got to we gotta fight for them, um, you, you start turning them down and you're going to see them all go away. Absolutely. Well, guys, we could probably talk about G-tubes all night, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave us there on behalf of our audience. Thanks to you both, Dr. Peter Bream and Dr. Aaron Brandis, for sharing your thoughts on G-tubes. Um, this has been the Backtable podcast, and um, stay tuned for part two of our series with Dr. Peter Bream and Dr. Dr. Aaron Brandis, where we will be talking about TDCs or permcasts. Um, fellas, thanks again. And to everybody else, so long.